Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 7, 10 to 16. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? You may be seated. Father, we thank you for this passage. We ask you that you would help us as we endeavor to live as relational people, created as relational people by you, our relational God, that you would help us in our marriages, that you would help us in our singleness, that you would help us as those who are widowed, those who are divorced, and whatever other situation is in this room. Lord, I pray for your help. And then pray that, God, we would be found faithful because of the instruction of your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We need to think biblically about divorce because what we think about divorce reflects what we believe about marriage. And what we think about marriage reflects what we think about love. And what we think about love reflects what we think about God. It's very important that we have right thinking on this topic. So hear me, I've said this before from this pulpit, but I've said we're confused about divorce because we're confused about marriage because we're confused about love. And we're confused, I think, because we have taken on board, we have inherited, we have embodied a worldly definition of love where love is essentially self-centered, self-serving, which is in contrast to the biblical teaching of love which is based on the nature and character of God, and then calls for a God-centered, others-focused, others-serving definition of love. If we rightly define love, we will have a far better chance at succeeding in faithful marriage. If we define love based on the world around us, we will struggle. So today, we're just going to look at God's love, biblical marriage, marriage and divorce, divorce and remarriage. That's how we're going to look at this. God's love Biblical marriage, marriage and divorce, and then divorce and remarriage. Another light topic in 1 Corinthians. Those of you reading ahead are well prepared. Those of you who have not read ahead are going, another week? Okay. God's love. First, God's love. Okay, We live in the created world. There's a distinction between creator and creation. It is important to remember that God existed before his creation. Before all creation, God eternally existed. It says in Psalm 90, verse 2, it says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Before there was anything, there was God. 
This is important because I want you to know that love did not begin once God created the world and humans. From eternity past, before the first word of creation was spoken, God is love. Theologians have lots of big words that they throw around to explain the interrelated love of God the Father for God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. But the point is that there is an interrelatedness in God where love has eternally existed. God's love is the literal point of origin for all his creation. God's love is the foundation then for all of our human interrelatedness. From before the very beginning, God is love. And from that point forward, then we see in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, we understand the love of God as the very foundation of how we are called to relate to one another and to then the whole world around us. So God revealed himself to his people as a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. It says in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Okay, Steadfast love and faithfulness is how God has related to his people from the very beginning. Not just because this is how he chose to relate to us. Yes, that is true, but it is because it is in his very nature and character as our God. God is love. This is the biblical foundation for all love. So if we absorb a cultural understanding of love that has more to do with romance, personal fulfillment, self-expansion, Sexual satisfaction, the kind of stuff that we see in every television show, every movie, every romance novel, right? It's no wonder that we then become confused about the nature of love. We are starting from the wrong point of origin. By God's grace and in his loving design, it is true that marital love can be romantic and fulfilling and advancing and satisfying. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. I pray that for every single person who is married. But if that's the sum total of what we understand our marital love to be about, then we are in big trouble. Because that stuff on its own is not strong enough to sustain a marriage. And for those who believe it is, hence our divorce rates. Biblical love is self-sacrificial. It is others-centered and built on a foundation that transcends our convenience. Biblical love is different. We're all called to love like this because this is how we have all been loved by God. God's love for us is covenantal and committed. This kind of covenant love means that God is with us and that God is for us. Now, to put a finer point on it as it relates to marriage and divorce and remarriage, to quote Scott McKnight, he said, this covenant understanding of love means marital love reflects God's love, which means a divorce destroys the reflection of the God who is utterly faithful. Marital love then is defined by God's love. Our love for our spouse is to be with them and to be for them. So the foundation for our love for one another is the nature and character of God and his love that we can see within the Trinity, eternally existent, 
is evidenced in all of creation in the way that he relates to us. And it's seen most clearly in his work of redemption, where God's love for the world sent Jesus to stand in our place, to lay his life down on our behalf, to go to death on the cross. That is love. That is God's love. We need to understand it from that perspective, or we start off in the wrong direction as we try and solve everything else about marriage and divorce and remarriage. Secondly, biblical marriage. I said some of this last week. I think it bears repeating. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Okay, marriage is God's idea. Paul is quoting Genesis chapter 2, where you see Paul's words in quotation marks. He is quoting Genesis chapter 2. Now, it is really important that you hear me on this. And this is going to be one of those mind-blowing truths, okay? Ready? Genesis 1 and 2 comes before Genesis 3. What do I mean? Genesis 1 and 2 give us the story of God's creation and the beginning of the institution of marriage. Genesis 1 and 2 come before Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 tells us the story of God's uh, judgment upon human rebellion when they disobeyed God, chose themselves over him, and when all kinds of judgment and conflict and curses and alienation and blame shifting and shame all started to begin. Genesis 1 and and 2, everything is good. In fact, if you read it, it says everything was very good. Genesis 3, bad. Very bad. Okay, uno, dos, tres. One, two, three. Uh, Un, deux, trois. That's all I've got. I've got those three languages. One, two, three. Genesis 1 and 2 tell us something very important that happened before sin entered into human history. Marriage is there. It's good. It's God's idea. Marriage is a Genesis chapter 2 institution that God established before sin entered into human history in Genesis chapter 3. Look at the text. Therefore, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage finds its origin in God who invented it. And once we see that, then we have to look at the mystery. Paul says this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage was God's idea, but marriage is not primarily about you. Marriage is not primarily about us. Marriage is a living parable. Marriage is an outward display of an invisible reality, of a hidden reality. Marriage is not primarily about you because marriage primarily points to Jesus and his church. We've got to understand that. I shared this quote last week. It bears repeating. George Knight said, Paul saw that when God designed the original marriage, he already had Christ and the church in mind. This is one of God's great purposes in marriage, to picture the relationship between Christ and his redeemed people forever. 
Okay? Marriage is patterned after the eternal relationship between Jesus and his church. Marriage points to the greater reality that is at play here. This means that God's love is evidenced in biblical marriage when we're willing to lay our lives down for the other. God's love, biblical marriage. Third, marriage and divorce. Let's look at our text for today. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. He says to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. It's verse 10. Verse 12 says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Okay, what is he saying? There's confusion around this, and I want to try and clear it up a little bit. Many people over the years have made the claim that what Paul's doing here is, he, is he's saying, look, when Jesus says it, you better listen because I have a command here from the Lord. But I'm just giving you some thoughts as a humble apostle. Take it or leave it. Okay? Many well-meaning people have actually said this. Um, and, it, and at the very least, I know that many well-meaning people in this room have thought it or wondered about it. Maybe this is what he's getting at. Okay? That, thinking about it that way kind of misses the point, though. Okay, the instruction in verse 12 where Paul says, I, not the Lord, is not less relevant or less authoritative or less important than the instruction in verse 10 where he says, the Lord, not I. Are you with me? All he's saying in verse 10 is that when he's speaking about two Christians who are married, he's, he, he can quote Jesus. He says, not I, but the Lord. But in verse 12, when he's speaking about, when we're going to see this, one who becomes a Christian after they're already married, and then they end up being married to an unbeliever. He doesn't have a saying of Jesus to draw on there, but he tells them what to do. He says, I, not the Lord. He wants to be clear. Sam, Sam said this, he wants to be a good academic. He wants to cite his sources properly. He goes, this one you can, you can go to Jesus on. He said this. He goes, this one's me. <laughs> so in subsequent papers through the ages, we cite Paul because we're good academics who have good citation notes. Not all of you, apparently. <laughs> he's just trying to be clear with where he's getting it from. He is not in any way, shape, or form diminishing his authority in this instance. And so the question is, is the text authoritative when he says, I, not the Lord? Yes. Paul has full apostolic authority as he is writing this letter to the church of God in Corinth. So yes, it is equally authoritative. Okay, but since Paul's quoting Jesus... What did Jesus have to say about divorce? Um, we find four places in the Gospels that we could go to. We can go to Matthew chapter 5, which I'll take you to in a second. Matthew chapter 19. We see a parallel uh, version of that in Mark chapter 10. And then you can see a, a quick summary in Luke uh, chapter 16. So you can, you can kind of see it. And when you, you put it all together, you're going to get what I'm going to show you. Matthew chapter 5 verse 31 says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. All right. In the time and place that Jesus was preaching this, there was a deeply entrenched conversation happening between religious leaders. And there were different camps who had different views on what constituted a divorce and permitted a remarriage. Now, I know that some of you may have come to the, to the text that we're in today, and you may have been asking a similar kind of question. You may have said, 
what permits remarriage? It's a fine question, and it's a fair question, and I'm going to answer it. But I, I do want to say this, and, and I'll quote Stanley Hauerwas. He says, if we come to this text looking for reasons to justify divorce, we miss the whole point. What this text does is to redefine marriage and to anchor it in the new community of Jesus, a community that will make possible both the single life and fidelity. Now, that's exactly what I think Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 7. I told you we're in this kind of little mini-series in 1 Corinthians 7. We're in the third week of it. Next week, we're looking at singleness. There's an elevation of singleness here in 1 Corinthians 7 that was unparalleled at the time. And I think it's really important that we understand biblical marriage and biblical singleness. But when Jesus says here in the text, you have heard it said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And and then he offers a new way of understanding it, which is actually just the old way, rightly read. He's jumping into the cultural conversation of his day around the justification of divorce and, and, and remarriage within his generation. He's correcting a misunderstanding. It was too permissive. There was a laxity happening within his people. And he's responding to this laxity by removing all other conditions and all grounds for divorce with the one exception of adultery. Okay? I have, I have like three more hours of content on this if you ever want to hear it from me. I'm not going to give it to you now because I love you. And there's another gathering after this. There's a lot to be said on this. There's a lot to be said, but let me say at least this. If this is an issue that you are wrestling with deep in your heart, you've been through some of this and you've got questions about how you should respond to things, we want to talk to you. Like you don't have to isolate on this. You don't have to go quiet or silent on this. You don't have to disappear. We just want to talk to you. And so contact our elders. We'll sit down and have a conversation. Talk to some of our staff. Ask questions. Talk to your community group leaders. I know Sam set them up really well. Uh, in terms of being able to answer some questions this week with things that are there, but talk to us. Don't just check out and disappear, okay? Okay. Jesus removes all other conditions apart from adultery. Okay, Jesus is talking about sexual sin that breaks down the marital covenant. And because marriage is a foundational institution that was put in place before humanity fell into sin, Jesus knows marriage is a gift, It's beautiful, it is holy, and that it represents something much larger than the relationship itself. Okay, I want to say it like this. Jesus holds a Genesis 2 understanding of marriage in a Genesis 3 world. And so should we. That's why reacting against the wrong understanding of his generation is good and right, and why he's so clear. And I think it's why the church of Jesus needs to be very clear on the issue of divorce today. When two become one in the biblical picture, that isn't something that should be separated. And we need to pay attention to that and why that matters. And we're going to get there. God's love, biblical marriage, marriage and divorce. Now let's look at the question of divorce and remarriage. Keep, Keep looking at this with me. And I want want you to see as we go back into the text, Paul is speaking to two different groups of people here. He's speaking to marriages where both are Christians, and he is speaking to marriages where one has come to Christ after they got married. Let me say it again. He is speaking to two groups of people, married Christians, disciples who are married, and 
a disciple of Jesus who came to Christ after they were already married. Look at this. This is the first group, verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. This is Paul's word to two Christians who are married. Both the husband and wife are Christians, and he is telling them that their marriage as Christians mean they should not separate from each other or divorce each other. Now, separate and divorce, I just want to say, are synonyms. We can look at them in that way. Um, I I don't want us to read 21st century family law into a first century text, like you have a legal separation and then divorce. I I don't want you to read that in here. They're being used synonymously, okay? So his point is, if you're married and you're Christian, stay married. But if you do separate or divorce, and there is no biblical justification for it, which means there has been no adultery, according to what Jesus said, then you either reconcile with your spouse or you stay unmarried. But you do not just move on into another relationship. That's the first group he's speaking to, married Christians. The second group he's speaking to, like this, verse 12. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. He's now speaking to people who are part of the Corinthian church who are married to someone who is not a follower of Jesus. It's the situation many of you are in. This is Paul's word to the person who is already married and then they heard the good news of the gospel and put their faith in Jesus and now they're Christians. Now they're part of the church in Corinth. He is telling them, if your unbelieving spouse is content to stay with you, even after you've become a Christian, don't divorce them. Okay, now just as an aside, I want to say this and we're going to come to this next week. This might be a hard word for some to hear, but I believe it needs to be said and I think it's helpful. This is dealing with a marriage where one person has become a Christian after they've already been married apart from the Lord. They're trying to figure out what to do. This is not a marriage where a Christian has just decided to marry someone who is not a follower of Jesus. Okay, I don't want you to hear that this is a license to marry outside the faith and then you just apply this to it. Okay, 1 Corinthians 7, later on, it's in, like, toward the end of, of chapter 7, is going to oppose the marriage of a Christian to a non-Christian. I believe the rest of the Bible does as well. I believe not only that it does, I I believe it's also really, really difficult to navigate the opposite. And enough years of pastoral ministry and enough conversations with brokenhearted people um, who who are struggling in that state. Um, Tell me, just be careful, singles. So why would new Christians then consider divorcing an unbelieving spouse? This is a question that we need to answer, okay? Two people get married, neither of them are Christians. One becomes a Christian somewhere along the way. Why would the Christian person consider divorcing their spouse just because they became a Christian? Well, in a lot of ways, ancient Corinth is very much like modern Vancouver in the sense that everybody's religious in their own way. But... Ancient Corinth was far less secular and more overtly idolatrous because it was existing in a more overtly idolatrous time in history. 
where people were more committed to their spiritual practices. And it could have been that the Christian in the marriage was concerned that their unbelieving spouse would defile them with their household idols and all the other spiritual practices. So this has happened and I've counseled someone through this exact situation. Uh, Very uh, high devotion Buddhist household. One of them gets radically saved, becomes a Christian. The house is full of Buddhist idols. And the Christian is going like, you know, Jesus' name. Like there's, now I have a revelation of what's going on here. What do I do? The answer is not divorce your spouse. The answer is remain with him. He's going to explain why. Look at the text, verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. And then verse 16 says, For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? The prevailing thinking in Corinth, when one person had a complete shift and a complete change in their religious worldview, was that that was going to do the marriage in. It doesn't matter what religious worldview you came into the marriage with. If you changed it, that was probably the end of the marriage. Paul's saying, no. No, don't do that. Don't worry about, yes, walk away from your family idols. Deny your religious beliefs from the the past. Begin to worship God, yes. But you will not be defiled by your spouse who does not believe in Jesus. Okay, Paul flips that on its head. And he shows them another way to think about it. Femi Perkins, she wrote this. She said, The Christian has no reason to dissolve an existing marriage to the non-believer on religious grounds. Some may have thought that marriage to a non-believer, someone who worshipped idols, contaminated a Christian's holiness. Or they may have worried that their offspring would be illegitimate. That is, unable to participate in the worshipping community. But Paul, Paul says no. In Christ, it's the other way around. Look at verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Now, now hear me. That doesn't mean they're saved. It's not some sort of magic thing, you know, when you become a Christian, you just walk around and start saving people. That's not what he's saying. And he's not even saying that your children, if you're a Christian, are automatically saved. Not saying that at all. He's not saying your unbelieving spouse is somehow eternally saved because you're a Christian. That's not what it's saying. He's speaking about the contrast. He's saying your unbelieving spouse does not make you unclean. Your Christian faith is stronger than that. In fact, he's saying you, with your Christian faith, remaining in that home, remaining in that marriage, it just might be the catalyst for them to be saved. Look at verse 16. How do you know, wife, whether you'll save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you save your wife? Okay, he's not saying they're automatically saved. He's saying that your Christian faith and you remaining faithful in the marriage exposes them to the truth of the gospel in ways that would not be true if you separated from your spouse. For instance, think about a friend of mine. When he was a kid, his mom got saved. Like she got saved, saved. Like one of those, I'm gonna now read my Bible multiple times a day, get on my knees in prayer, pray out loud in front of my kids and my husband who don't yet believe. That kind of saved, saved. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Okay. His mom became a Christian. He was not a Christian. All of a sudden, he's going to church on Sunday. You know, good marriage, 
husband loves his wife, supports her in her new venture of Christianity, doesn't understand it, and is frankly kind of like, as long as it doesn't affect me that much, like you go do your thing. Can I take the kids to church? Sure. <laughs> Sunday morning with no one at home. I'm not saying that's what he thought. I'm just saying. I'm just saying a little bit, a little bit of me time. Kids start going to church. So my buddy starts getting dragged to church. He starts to hear the gospel. It starts to affect him. They see mom praying. They see mom reading her Bible. They see mom loving and serving her husband. They see mom loving and serving them as their kids. She's different. Husband gets saved. Four kids get saved. One kid is a cross-cultural missionary. Two are in pastoral ministry. And one is a business leader in his church. Parents, huge mission supporters, had their lives completely turned right side up. How do you know that you won't see that happen? Stay in your marriage. That's what Paul's saying. Now, that's the best case scenario. What happens if things don't go that way? Because it, it, it might not go that way. Verse 15 says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. The big question is, if the unbelieving spouse separates from the believing spouse, does that mean the believing spouse in the church is free to remarry? In my estimation, yes. I believe that is what this text is saying. He or she is no longer bound to the former union, and in that sense, they are no longer enslaved because the other person has abandoned the marriage. Okay, again, I want to highlight this because I think it's actually really important that we hear it. It is worth noting all of the times in this chapter that Paul commends remaining unmarried and how he is calling people to realize the validity of singleness in the church as an option. But again, I believe the person is free. It's going to say at the end of chapter 7 that they are free, he's going to talk about widows, free to remarry in the Lord. There's, there's one further point I would say just about this because I think it's helpful. Earlier in the chapter when we talked about singleness and, and how if you're single and you want to stay single, that is a good way to live. And if you're single and you don't want to stay single, you are free to marry. I think if you said that a person who's been abandoned by their spouse was not free to remarry, you are now actually making celibacy law rather than free choice and to receive as a gift. And I just think that's important. I don't think having an unbelieving spouse abandon you, if you want to be married again, should prohibit you from being remarried. Again, I think that's what the text is saying. So let me try and summarize where we've been and how I think we need to handle this as followers of Jesus. Some of you, you've tuned out the whole time because you were just waiting for the list where I clarify everything. Here it is. <laughs> one, biblical marriage is a lifelong union of one man to one woman to the exclusion of all others. Marriage was given to us in Genesis chapter 2 before sin entered into the story. Second, because we live in a Genesis 3 world, there are two valid exceptions and reasons to be divorced. One, 
Divorce is biblically permitted but not required on the basis of adultery. We've looked at that here in Matthew chapter 5. You would see that in Matthew chapter 19, Mark chapter 10, Luke 16. The other is that divorce is biblically permitted but not required. Uh, but not you, you hear what I'm saying. On the basis of abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. That's 1 Corinthians 7. So two reasons, exceptions, that marriage will be permitted, or that divorce will be permitted in marriage. Adultery and abandonment. Okay? Now, I'm going to add something with what I would call a boatload of caution that I think would need to be discussed on a case-by-case instance. And it is not something that I would say becomes a blanket statement that then gets abused, which is, it is at points. But I want to add another qualification to this because I think it's necessary in the world that we live in. We have a Genesis 2 view of marriage in a Genesis 3 world. I'll quote Kevin DeYoung. He said, I think it is safer biblically to maintain that there are two acceptable grounds for divorce. But having said that, I could envision in extreme situations, the elders might conclude, this man or woman has not completely disappeared, but his life is tantamount to desertion or abandonment. If a guy is strung out on drugs, gambling away, gambling all their worldly possessions, and has repeatedly beaten his wife, might that count as desertion at some point? This is why each case needs to be dealt with individually. It's also why we would need uh, why we need biblical principles so we have something to apply in these gut-wrenching, difficult, sinful scenarios. Again, we've got Genesis 2 view of marriage in a Genesis 3 world. I have heard stories where the Church of Jesus Christ, not this particular local church, but our brothers and sisters, have sent a woman back into an abusive marriage because that guy did not commit adultery and he had not abandoned her. That's an egregious sin. If you know anyone in this kind of situation or you know someone who needs help, you call us. Please. Our elders will be there in minutes to help work through that situation. Reconciliation is always our goal because we have a Genesis 2 view of marriage. But the reality is there are times where we would see another reason like abuse as tantamount to abandonment. Adultery, abandonment, and abuse. This is what we would look at. The third thing I want to say, when divorce was not permissible, so it's an illegitimate divorce, any subsequent re- uh, remarriage results in, adul- in, in adultery. That's what Jesus is saying. When divorce was not permissible, any subsequent remarriage results in adultery. Fourth, in situations when the divorce was permissible, so again, I would look at Adultery and abandonment. In situations when the divorce was permissible, remarriage is then also permissible. And number five, because we live in a Genesis 3 world, improperly divorced and remarried Christians, that would be someone who had an illegitimate divorce and then got remarried, they should stay as they are. You don't add another divorce to the mix just because the marriage shouldn't have happened in the first place. They need to repent and be forgiven and make amends when they can. But we would try and handle that with grace, not by fracturing another union. 
Okay. Let me close with this. This is really, to me, the, 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 the crux of the whole issue, the, the why behind it all. Earlier I said marriage is patterned after the eternal relationship between Jesus and his church. Marriage points us to the greater reality that is at play. It says in Ephesians 5, this mystery is profound that I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Jesus' high view of marriage is based on Genesis 2. Jesus' exception clause that allows divorce in the case of adultery is based on the reality that we live in a Genesis 3 world. Paul's exception clause that allows for divorce in the case of abandonment by an unbeliever is based on the reality that we live in a Genesis 3 world. But I want you to hear that divorce is so antithetical to the gospel because Jesus' love for his bride does not have an exception clause. Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride. And Jesus isn't looking for an exception. He's all in. He is not looking for a way out. He's going to love us until we are lovely. There's something bigger going on. It's, it's as though Jesus looks at his people and says, you have failed miserably. You are stained with sin. You have wandered in unfaithfulness. But then he comes to us and he says, let me bind up your wounds. Let me cleanse you from your sin. Let me lay down my life for yours. That's how good the gospel of Jesus is to you and is to me. It's how good the gospel of Jesus is to us as Jesus' people. He is the groom, the church is the bride, and he looks on us and he says, I know what you've done. I love you anyways. You're mine. Jesus says to us, not only will I have you and hold you till death do us part, he says, I'll have you and hold you and my death will make you clean. My resurrection will make you new and my union with you will make you whole. Jesus says, my union with you knows no bounds, has no exception clause and will fill you with everlasting joy. So you may think about marriage as you've seen it lived out in 2022 and you may think that sometimes the wife didn't know what she got herself into, or sometimes the husband didn't know what he got himself into. But I want to say very clearly, Jesus knew what he was getting himself into. And he did it anyway. He did it for you. And to me, that's why marriage matters. It's why divorce breaks the heart of God. It's why God's love has to be the example and the empowerment of our marriages as a visible sign of the invisible reality it points to. Let's stand and respond together.